So many things have ruined my childhood So I go online to bitch and cry It feels like all of Hollywood is up against me They even made Optimus Fly New versions of what I grew up with Are being remade, rebooted and retried My adolescence is under attack now I think that a part of me has died Aliens, uh -huh, uh -huh. Predators, uh -huh, uh -huh. Marvel, uh -huh, uh -huh. DC, uh -huh, uh -huh. maybe it doesn't all quite sting. Okay, well, except maybe for that Jar Jar Binks. Could it be I've misunderstood? This podcast ruined my childhood. Everyone and welcome to this podcast, Ruin My Childhood. I'm Phil Durasmo, and with me is Eric Wilinski. How's it going, Eric? It's going great, Phil. This is the podcast. This week, we are going to take you on a trip to a galaxy far, far away, and pretty sure it was a long time ago, but uh, we're, we're going to talk to you about the first season of The Mandalorian. Now, The Mandalorian is a show that was conceived for the launch of the platform Disney+. Plus. Many of you out there probably have subscription to it or know people who do and are sharing passwords with your other accounts so that you can see The Mandalorian, because it is, as of a study that just came out in 2021, it was the most binge-watched show in 2020, and it was also the most pirated show in 2020 around the world. <laughs> so, for those of you that didn't have Disney Plus and found other ways to watch it, good for you. So, Eric, take me down that road for you, uh, going back to the end of 2019 when this premiered, and uh, your thoughts on both The Mandalorian and how it fits into Star Wars. Well, there'd been rumors for even before The Mandalorian um, that there was going to be a Star Wars TV show. I seem to remember, like, even before 2019, there was talk 
that there'd be a Star Wars TV show. And I remember thinking a Star Wars TV show would be pretty cool because, you know, you only get Star Wars in the movies and, you know, you get a little bit of cool storylines in video games. So I'm thinking, wow, a TV show would be good. But then I was also thinking, because we're kind of on the kind of the advent right now, or we've sort of been in it in a little while, of like this amazing movie level quality television. So I remember when the rumors for Mandalorian, not the Mandalorian, but a Star Wars TV show started, I started kind of thinking like, oh, if it's sort of like, a, you know, a, a one and done adventure kind of series and uh, it could look kind of cheesy with just stormtroopers and y- yeah, you throw in like a couple of creature masks that don't quite live up, you know, like maybe next generation quality kind of stuff. I was a little nervous. But then when I saw The Mandalorian the first time, I was like, holy crap, this mm-hmm. this is cinema level. Y- you could have, you know, made The Mandalorian like just one movie and and you're already there with the quality you've got going on here. So uh, I was I was initially like excited for it. And then I was a little like, uh oh, I hope they do it right. And yeah, yeah they did not miss no, they didn't. So you already uh, can hear Eric's thoughts on how he feels about this. Same same for me. So, you know, I, I work for Disney and Star Wars Lucasfilm is owned by Disney. And there were rumors for a while that there was something in the works, even behind the scenes. You know, I, I at the time worked in theme parks and we were working on opening Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And the Imagineers that we were working with uh, as we were building out Galaxy's Edge said, you know, there were rumors uh, that they would have to integrate some things from something new that's coming that's not a movie. And so many of us on the team got really excited. We were like, oh, so there's going to be a show. We had already announced Disney Plus. So we were like, all right, probably Disney Plus. What does this mean? What is it going to look like? And come to find out that when Galaxy's Edge opens, there's a Mandalorian helmet that's in Doc Ondar's shop, which is one of the merchandise locations in Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And that Mandalorian helmet turns out to be the helmet of this Mandalorian. Really? So that's one of those cool little touches that they put in Galaxy's Edge. Now, will that be canon that the Mandalorian is maybe dead or or whatnot and his helmet goes in Doc Ondar's and that's the canonical storyline of what's happened to Din Djarin. Probably not because there's rumors now that Mandalorian characters are going to start walking around Galaxy's Edge. So who knows? But that was one of those little things that when we found out, you know, they were working with uh, Lucasfilm and trying to figure out ways that they could put little nods to this new show that nobody had really heard of yet. Turns out that the the Mandalorian helmet is there. Maybe we can bring this back around in a later part of the podcast. Uh, but I do want to touch on uh, the synergy that is being created now with Star Wars. Um, I think it's, uh, as an example, just to take us on a slight detour, I'm reading a book right now called Thrawn. And uh, it uses a character that was created by Timothy Zahn in the 90s for mm-hmm. the heir to the empire trilogy and uh, it was a series of books probably the best 
series of books written. It's now considered legacy. It is not canon, but it is a great, great Star Wars read. And what I've been saying all along, as soon as Star Wars started coming back, um, as far as 7, 8, and 9 are concerned, not necessarily with the prequels, but why people weren't using more of what was in the Timothy Zahn and the post-Return of the Jedi novels that were written in the 90s and the 2000s to fuel some of the new movies that are being made because some of that stuff is brilliant, brilliant writing. Disney owns all of it. I know they said that, well, anything that happened before we bought it is not canon anymore, but you could still use those elements. I mean, just the same way like, you know, Marvel Comics or DC, you recreate a character over and over. While I'm particularly not a huge fan of just, I don't want to have a million different explanations for Boba Fett, the same way you have a million different flashes or a million different Batmans, and this is Batman, you know, beyond, and this is, you know, old Batman, new Batman, different universe Batman. I'd like to stay away from that. I hope Star Wars stays away from that. But I wouldn't mind if you are going to just have this big body of work there. Find the best parts of it, which are definitely Thrawn, Mara Jade, pretty much anything Timothy Zahn created. I hope you're listening to this, Timothy Zahn. <laughs> Dude, Zahn, you the bomb. You the bomb. You <laughs> you created some stuff, man, that is, is incredible. But back to my point about the synergy. So the new Thrawn book, Actually, because again, Thrawn is not canon in some aspects of uh, his existence, but now he is canon because he's in uh, Star Wars Rebels, the cartoon, and now the books that are being written, he's being written as a new Thrawn. So some of his his post-Return of the Jedi adventures don't qualify anymore, but now they're writing him earlier into uh, the Star Wars canon. So this latest book features the planet Batuu, which obviously, again, is a direct tie into Galaxy's Edge, which is the synergy. Now, I know some people could be a little cynical, and I've even got slight cynicism when you think, well, are you just trying to make money? You're just trying to get people in your theme parks? Well, of course, you know, a lot of this stuff, we're not, you know, Disney isn't making this stuff for free, you know, there's still a certain profit to be made, of course, and sometimes it can be a little forced, But I think in this aspect, and this sort of ties into The Mandalorian, using existing Star Wars stuff to fuel your new stuff. So Batuu is largely new because Galaxy's Edge is only recently created. But to put it immediately into one of your first books that takes you to explore a character and, hey, well, we got to go to a planet. Let's make it a planet that already kind of exists that people don't really know about and just add it in there. I think all of that works to kind of promote a larger universe rather than everything being a new planet and a new planet and a new planet and a new planet, which is kind of what episode seven, eight, and nine did. Yep. And and why not just feature a different part of a planet we've heard of or even and now I'm really going down my Star Wars rabbit hole, (laughs) even planets that were mentioned in the original trilogy that we never saw. Han Solo in Empire Strikes Back, that bounty hunter we ran into on Ord Mandel changed my mind. Well, why not go there? We never saw that planet. We we don't know if Ord Mandel is a is a planet or a city or or a space station or anything. Yeah. So why not? Why not take us there? 
And people would be like, where are they going? Or man, oh, wait a minute, that's that planet that Han and the, oh, cool. So everything's integrated, but instead everything's brand new, brand new, brand new. It's like, I haven't heard of these places. Why not, why not give me a little familiar? But they at least started using newer things. Uh, I mean, older things. They you know, incorporated Tatooine and built it into the story. And then they also referenced other characters uh, from other properties. I completely agree with you. I love the synergy that Star Wars is creating now. One of my biggest issues with Episodes 7, 8, and 9, and especially with Episode 9, is that they once again took us to all these new places that didn't need to be introduced into the story. But this whole point that we're talking is to talk about the beauty that is the Mandalorian and how the synergy they're creating amongst the Star Wars universe is really what we've, as Star Wars fans, have been craving and asking for. And Favreau and Filoni together have created this amazing pair that understands Star Wars explicitly. And there was the trend following the last episode of season two where Mark Hamill tweeted at Filoni and Favreau and created a hashtag for thank you. That hashtag then took off and it was trending for several hours that day because Star Wars fans jumped on it and started tweeting at Dave and John and used that hashtag. And that is what I love to see. Star Wars fans are so divisive about so many different things in their universe, and I'm just very glad that they could come together and appreciate this show that's created by these two wonderful showrunners who seem to just get it. Right. And that's what I was going to say. All of that preamble here is to <laughs> say that finally they're they're doing it right with, again using older components that satisfy the original trilogy folks and using newer components to draw a newer audience in and just put together a nice, simple story that just works. There's not a lot of major thought that needs to go into, you know, what's happening now. I don't, you know, you don't need to necessarily know a lot of star Wars history. This is almost like an introductory kind of show you know you still have to be familiar with star wars that definitely helps of course but you know if if all you ever did was watch the movies you can you can kind of watch this show now there are certain elements that are newer uh that come from books and other tv series that they incorporate we'll get to those um so it helps if you have a broader understanding you might appreciate it deeper but they're at least trying to make a cohesive world now um yeah you you mentioned a a, a a meme. Uh, I saw one where it was, uh, it's a quote from J.J. Abrams where he says, I can't make a Star Wars movie that pleases both the original trilogy fans and draws in a newer audience. And then John Favreau says, hold my beer. And yeah. it's a picture of the Mandalorian. <laughs> so I thought about that. And, and really, I think, and I, and this could go for everybody in the creative world who's trying to introduce a new property based on an old property or continue property. But they have to remember that even when the old property was new, nobody knew anything about it. So they didn't worry about trying to make people, well, they don't know anything about this. So how are they going to get into it? So for example, Obi-Wan Kenobi, I didn't know who Alec Guinness was. I didn't know he was this classically trained theater thespian mm -hmm. 
you know, I didn't, I had no idea. Who was he in the movie? Oh, he was the old guy who helped Luke, and he was kind of cool. Oh, and then he got cut down. Oh, and then he popped up again later in the movies. That's my Obi. That's my Alec Guinness. Right. I know nothing. I mean, I know now, but as a kid, I didn't know anything about Bridge Over the River Kwai or any of his like more like famous, grittier roles that he took on. You know, he. I just I knew him as Obi Wan Kenobi. So in the same way. J.J. Abrams could have had Luke be that Obi-Wan character and not worry like, well, people don't know who Luke Skywalker is. It doesn't matter. I was seven years old. I didn't know who Obi-Wan Kenobi was, and I liked him. A seven-year-old doesn't need to know Mark Hamill's entire history to know, oh, this is the old guy who's helping Ray. Yeah. Yeah, there there were some big, big face plants when it comes to J.J. creating this series that you know, in my opinion, Ryan Johnson cleaned up and tried to move forward, and then JJ just fell backwards again. But Favreau and Filoni, well, really Favreau, because this is his his baby. He and Kathleen Kennedy came together and have this this great idea for the show. So, with that being said, we know who Mandalorians are through Boba Fett, and then through other things that have come out in in the star Wars lore, like in, in rebels and in uh, the clone wars yep, in books, but we, we haven't ever really spent much time with them and Boba Fett and Jango Fett are poor excuses for Mandalorians because they're barely in any of the movies that we've seen. So we really hadn't had an opportunity to get to know this, this group of people, right? Not on their own. Not without them being a side story for other galaxy events. And so to your point of not needing to know who somebody is to drag in a new audience, we have this character we've never met before, and he's intriguing, and he's mysterious, and he's strong, and he's everything you want from somebody that wears the same kind of outfit that Django and Boba Fett wore. And so immediately you're pulled in. The opening scene... In the first episode of The Mandalorian, Amanda walks into a bar and a punchline occurs. But hmm. there's somebody that people are talking to and they're they're egging on that they're going to cut him open and take his his whatever sacks for milk sacks or something. And Mandalorian walks into the bar and everything gets quiet. Right. And then three guys who were, um, you know, going to hurt this one who we find out is the bounty start giving him some crap and mando doesn't take any crap and he's strong he's stoic he's quiet and he he is in that opening scene he's everything we wanted boba fett to be right and more and immediately the claws are in us and we are we are hooked and it's been said before by other you know, critics and reviewers, etc. Um, it this is a space western. Mm-hmm. As soon as he walks in the door, he and that's what I love about this show in general is when Mando walks, and then when he teams up later with other Mandos, they all jangle like yeah. cowboys. Like there's, you know, cowboys have their spurs and whatever mm-hmm. the metal is that clanks around on the Mandalorians when they ching. Ching, ching. Beskar, I'm sure. Well, for sure. 
but I don't know what part of the Beskar is loose to clank like that. <laughs> I haven't done my research. What what clanks? <laughs> that stuff should be tight. Um, but anyway, it it it's totally Clint Eastwood walking around, yeah. glaring at everybody, and everybody like looking at him like, okay, uh, I don't know who you are, but you definitely look like trouble. So I'm gonna mind my business, and and that's you know that's what Clint Eastwood did in his westerns, and that's what that's what Mando does when he walks in, and yeah. and again, it's the fact that everybody kind of recognizes the armor and and to a degree not everybody even in the star wars universe knows everything about mandalorians but they're they're wise enough to go oh this guy looks a little different than most it's funny you bring up the the western piece because yeah th- this show is completely inspired by westerns it's funny because favreau said the character of din Djarin, the mandalorian is specifically inspired by Clint Eastwood's Man With No Name character. Oh, it is. Okay. Uh, yep. And then also by Akira Kurosawa's Samurai films. Right. And you can see both of those in the even the first episode. What's funny is that we have this great actor. We can't say, you know, we can't say enough about Pedro Pascal, who is completely covered for the series. He has... One moment in the last episode of um, the first season where he takes his mask off and we see his face. Now, many of you out there that are listening to this might be haters that say, well, he's not in the outfit the whole time. They just use his voice. Well, that's true. There's body double. There's a guy that um, is his stand in for certain scenes and sequences. But he is there for quite a bit of the time and he is doing quite a bit of the acting under the mask. Uh, But the way that both the stand-in and Pedro Pascal can emote without you having to see the character's eyes is just phenomenal. The way that they move, the way that you can tell how he's feeling by how his body tenses and the either the quick or slow ways that he turns his head so that you can tell he's looking around under the helmet is amazing. And I have to give it to all of the directors of each episode because they've really helped in pulling that out of the actors. But Pedro has created this brand new character in the Star Wars universe that is revered and is is completely respected, not only on the screen, but by us as fans. And in saying that, I will t- jump to a part of season two, not to get ahead of ourselves, but there is an episode in season two where Din has his helmet off for a good amount of the episode. And in that episode, he still moves. Pedro Pascal still moves as if he's wearing a helmet, which to me is an amazing feat because if you have lived your life from when you were probably like 10 to 12 years old underneath this mask, your body would react to sounds and movements in a certain way so that you could look at them. And so when Pedro moves, he moves most of his upper body to move his head. He doesn't just move his neck. And it's those little pieces of the acting that Pedro brings out that completely make me buy into and love this character even more. Yeah. And and to think that Pedro was uh, approached by John Favreau to play this character, and he hemmed and hawed about it. And luckily, 
his BFF uh, bro li- bro lover for life, Oscar Isaac, who has been in a couple Star Wars films as Poe Dameron, urged him to take it. And I don't know if any of you out there know or don't know Oscar Isaac's and Pedro Pascal's relationship, but go look them up on Instagram. They are truly best friends. And they have so many pictures together where they're just like arm in arm or or hugging or just broing out. And it is it is so wholesome and wonderful. So thanks to Oscar Isaac for getting us uh, Pedro Pascal in this character. Yeah, that episode you were talking about where uh, he does have the, the helmet off. Yeah, I agree. He He almost, his face even was sort of expressionless for certain parts. Which, again, is because if you're used to having a helmet on all the time, you probably lose that uh, or, or never even had the, the kind of uh, facial motions or whatever you want to call them that, that normal people have when you don't, like, you know, even to grin a little yeah. bit, you know, move your eyes a little bit. Like, he totally keeps his face like it's still hidden, even though people can see it. And yep. and I'm sure part of that is also maybe like his nerves because it was such a big deal for him to take his helmet off that maybe he's even like, oh my gosh, I'm doing something I've never, ever done. And even though I'm this real tough bounty hunter, now I'm, I'm way out of my comfort zone. So I'm sure some of that played in, but to your overall point, the way he completely played it, it wasn't like the other Mandalorians who are just popping their helmets off and they know how to emote with you know, their eyes and their face and their, their mouth and create yeah. emotion that way. He totally played it like this is uncomfortable for me and I don't know what to do with my face Yep, <laughs> on purpose, on purpose. Mm-hmm. So the both seasons are eight episodes and that's what will continue to happen as the show moves forward. There's rumors out there that we're going to get five seasons of The Mandalorian. And then all of these other new Star Wars shows that have recently been announced, along with others that have still not been announced, that will culminate in something grand and huge at the end. And so what we've been set up with for these past two seasons so far, I can't wait to see where this goes, where all of these shows will be created and then come together. And there's rumors that it'll either be its own show with all the characters together, or it might even be a feature, which... I personally would rather get a show that's like, you know, between five and eight hours than a two and a half hour long movie. But I'll take what I can get because I'm so engaged in what's happening in this world right now. Boy, you know, I would actually probably go the opposite way. And I would probably prefer the two and a half ish hour movie only because if you've already got all of these other hours and hours of all these shows, I think, I think a nice slam bang two and a half hour, like get everything all, you know, don't waste your time mm-hmm. in the movie. Yeah, I guess that's right. Get everything out in the, the series leading up to it so that you're just focused on what their end yeah. goal is in the movie. Yes. Take, that makes your, take your time in the TV show to be perfect and precise, but then give it that two. And so ultimately the two and a half hour finale is, is like a, just one really long episode, but for every TV show. Yeah. I guess you, uh, 
You might be convincing me. <laughs> hey, again, like you, like you said, though, I'll take whatever. But I'm thinking that might be the what I would prefer because you can do so much more with the the series. And then once you're done with that, and now it's like, here's just boom. Mm-hmm. Here's everything yeah. they work for. Yeah. What's um, what's amazing to me is I, I want to take a step back and talk about Favreau and his involvement in this because, I mean, it's it's really incredible and mind-blowing that the guy that was on the receiving end of You're So Money You Don't Even Know It is now making the best Star Wars content, in my opinion, that we've gotten since the original trilogy. And he hasn't, I think he hasn't done anything since Swingers. Right, yeah, he's just, he's done nothing <laughs> since Swingers, exactly. But he's just, Favreau has tackled such amazing pieces of our pop culture since Swingers. And he he acts and he does a, a good job acting. He's a good actor, but he is a great director, writer, and filmmaker. And that's that's been put on display over the years from he he got the opportunity to make elf right and and there's this great series on netflix called the movies that made us and they came out with a new two episode season this past holiday season that was called the holiday movies that made us and one of them is about elf and how john favreau was just given this chance because he had an interesting take on how he wanted to make that movie and it was john's idea to use the old uh, Rankin and Bash Christmas style uh, stop motion animation to to be part of the elf world in the North Pole. And that's something that when you're making a film like that, it seems like that's the only way to do it. But that was not part of the original script. That was John's idea to, to connect the audiences from the adults that grew up with those specials and kids that would find those things appealing in this film. And he just has the talent and the eye to, to make some of that work. And he went from elf to doing, you know, so many other things culminating in helping to lead the charge for building the Marvel universe with Iron Man and Iron Man two. And, and then he took on a pretty huge task in Disney's lion King when they did the live action remake. Now, whether or not, that's a good film, which Eric and I, we will definitely talk about in the future. It still was a visual and and VFX challenge to get that movie made. And Favreau has proven that he can tell a strong story and build likable characters while using technology to his benefit. To cite The Mandalorian and Elf and Iron Man, which you already hit on, they also show his great ability as a storyteller to get you get you in, tell you the story, and then get you out without a lot of fat and unnecessary scenes, dialogue, right. characters, or anything. You, you talked about Elf. The whole reason, not the whole reason, I mean, it's Will Ferrell is, as a giant elf. <laughs> but the reason that movie also works is because you start watching Elf and Elf is over before you realize it because it just goes. 
Yeah. They there's there's no time wasted. They could have had like insane amounts of Will Ferrell being crazy in that. But as a solidly constructed story, that makes as much sense as a nice little fantasy Christmas pick like that can make. It it gets you engaged, it tells you the story, and then it wraps it up in a nice little moment. Same thing with Iron Man. There's no fat in that movie. It okay. it starts you off with the the attack and then cuts you off in the middle of it and then goes 24 hours earlier and then catch you up to speed and then finishes the movie. And again, Iron Man goes so fast. You, you don't even realize you've watched about two hours of content. So the same thing with Mandalorian. There's, there's no real fat in, in, in the Mandalorian. They, the story just tells you the story and there's, there's not time wasted. There's not character wasted. There's not dialogue wasted. And and I think that's that's a great mark of a filmmaker for me when you, you sit down and you watch two hours of something and and then you're like, oh, my God, it's over already. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And so here's something funny is that yesterday, you know, we're recording this on a Friday. So Thursday, I was I had a lot of work that I needed to get done for for my job and I can sit on the couch and do it in front of the TV and of course, the work that I would do, I could probably get done in three to four hours if I just focused. But yesterday, I put on the first season of The Mandalorian, knowing that we were going to talk about it here. And I watched the entire first season from 4.30 until 11 yesterday. <laughs> wow. And yeah, I was working the whole time, because, and I wasn't focused on the show the whole time. But I was able to get through all eight episodes of the first season with a couple pauses here and there to go make food and make sure the dog could go out and focus on some work that I needed to focus on so I could rewind certain scenes to to focus on them. Um, it took me longer than it should have to watch all eight episodes, but I got through it all. And I'm so glad I did because it's such an enriching Star Wars story, holistic Star Wars story that I, I don't know when I would have sat down to rewatch the whole first season again. And I'm just, I feel like a better Star Wars fan for doing it because I saw things I didn't notice before and I could go, I could recognize the things that people had been talking about after the episodes were over that were callbacks to other pieces of, of Star Wars lore. And one of the things that right out of the gate, I'll tell you is that the first episode dives right into Star Wars as Star Wars. Within the first 10 minutes of episode one, they make a reference to Life Day, which is a, a reference to the Star Wars holiday special. And we've already talked about that on this podcast, so we don't have to go down that rabbit hole. But the, the fact that John Favreau looked at all of Star Wars and said, I'm going to throw in this reference to Life Day that's only been in the Star Wars holiday special to this point and make it canon is just amazing. Right. And then when you look through the whole rest of the series, both season one and two, there are little nods to things that happened throughout Star Wars books, throughout the old legend. Uh, there's a sequence in one of the episodes where there's... So, Eric, I don't know if... I think you, you and I talked about this a year ago when it happened, but Warner Herzog's The Client pulls out this weird canister-looking thing that he then takes... Mando's payment of Beskar out of. That weird canister thing is better known from The Empire Strikes Back 
as something that someone in Cloud City is running around with, and it's called a Camtono in the Star Wars universe. It's basically a security cylinder. But for Star Wars fans, after The Empire Strikes Back, we knew it as like the ice cream machine or the coffee maker or something like that. That's funny. We, did, we didn't talk about that. But now that you say it, I, I recognize it and I know what you mean. It's like, yeah, leave Cloud City. Take the coffee maker? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the guy just picks up this thing and runs. And we, we don't know what it is. We don't know why. But it's also in The Mandalorian. <laughs> and John just looks at these things and says... Fans are going to love this, and people that don't know aren't even going to recognize it. So and let's just do it. Yes, and see, that's where I think they got hung up with the with seven, eight, and nine. Is thinking, yep. well, we can't put all this stuff in there that just for the other, but you can put subtle things. You can do that. Like I loved that. So IG eighty eight from Empire Strikes Back is the assassin droid that is mm-hmm. assembled with Bosk and uh, Zuckus and the rest of the bounty hunters. And you don't know anything about them. They just look cool, creepy, weird, you know, like people you really wouldn't want to mess with. And uh, but the only one we really get to know is is Boba Fett. And then that's really it for those characters uh, in. Yeah, we get some action figures. Right. That's it. Action figures. And that's it. So you never really get to see what IG-88 can really do or what Bosk, this reptilian lizard creature can do. So I thought it was super cool. And to that end, we never really see what. Boba Fett can do. He has a real brief showing in Return of the Jedi. You know, he kind of takes on Luke for a second, and it looks like it might be a a contest yeah. until he he dies. So when well, when he Din, well, <laughs> asterisk. As far as we knew in 1983, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, uh, so Din teams up with uh, I forget what ig11 ig11 forgot the designation ig11 and so you you kind of and i don't know if this was deliberate or not i'm gonna say it is you kind of get to see what boba fett and ig88 could have done together through boba fett and ig11 or or mandalorian mandalorian and ig11 and i thought that was super duper neat um Mm -hmm. and then and then those other little things that they just kind of pepper in there um I was going to say they mentioned Bosk in Mandalorian, but that's actually from the solo story. Uh, Woody Harrelson's yeah. character, they're talking around the campfire. They're like, we could have got Bosk to help us, which I thought was cool because, again, if you don't know who Bosk is, that's just a name. It doesn't yeah. mean anything. Doesn't distract I mean, you from anything. Doesn't make you roll your eyes and go, oh, God, you got to know everything about Star Wars to get that. Mm-hmm. It's just like in a normal movie set on Earth where somebody goes, hey, did you get the, the payment from Harris? Oh yeah. Well, you don't need to know who Harris was. It's just a name, you know. Yep. In, yep. In, but anyway, so yes, I love the the subtleties. Yeah. the The other really amazing piece that they threw into Episode One is that Din Djarin has, you know, of his many weapons, he has this shock rifle that is like a two prong right shock stick, but it's also it shoots shock blasts, and um, it's just this really cool looking. What's that? Disintegrator. Disintegrator. There you go. The The amazing piece of that is that the only other time a weapon like that is shown in Star Wars is also in the Star Wars Holiday Special, and that is the type of weapon that Boba Fett has in that cartoon. animated right. cartoon. And so, once again, Favreau said, we're going to use pieces of Star Wars history without 
bashing you over the head with it. So it is just the weapon that the Mandalorian uses. And if you've never seen the Star Wars Holiday Special, you wouldn't know that that's where he pulled it from. I think that's amazing. It's great. And it also ties in a line from The Empire Strikes Back, where Boba Fett is told by Darth Vader, I want them alive, no disintegrations. Which implies that he knows that Mandalorians have weapons of this. We never see Boba Fett use one in the movies or in Mm -hmm. the TV show, but it's implied that this weapon exists. And then you see Din use it where he disintegrates a couple of uh, people coming after the child. So in season one, we meet this Mandalorian covert that lives in the underground tunnels of the planet of Navarro. And um, we don't really know much about them other than they follow the Mandalorian creed. People in the universe seem to know the Mandalorian creed, that they don't remove their helmets. But that's never really been a part of the Mandalorian lore that we've been taught about in Star Wars, um, the Clone Wars and Rebels. So it's in it's interesting that this covert of Mandalorians are on this planet and they follow this creed that we haven't really been taught about. So so at the beginning of the series, when I started watching this, I started thinking, well, maybe this has happened because of the Mandalorian purge, and now they they just live as Mandalorians regardless of what they actually are, they just live with this creed and it's a direct result of what happened on Man- on Mandalore. But we find out later as the series goes on that that's not exactly the case. But we're introduced to these awesome Mandalorians and the, the one leader of their group who is smelting the, the Beskar and creating the armor for Din is just such a badass. Everything that she says, I hang on every word. And she's got a lot of respect. Yeah, she's got this cool gold helmet too with these little horns on it. Like she just looks commanding. So, whoever this armor is, uh, we don't really know much about her beyond the fact that she smelts the Beskar and, and makes the weapons and such. But everybody clearly gives her a wide berth of respect. Because when there's a little bit of a skirmish, I think at one point she's enough and boom, they're just all right. You know, Mm -hmm. it it, it tells you right there again in in very short order without belaboring anything, you know, how she is written. It's just she's the one who's in charge and you don't have to know, well, who is she under there? Well, why do they respect? No, you just you get it. Top dog. Just bark, (laughs) and everybody else shut up. Mm -hmm. And that's. That's just a cool, cool way to do a character like that. And if we end up finding more about her later, that's great. But for the time being, to get us where we're going, you don't you don't need a heavy bag. Right. Right. Agreed. Um, so we we meet these Mandalorians and when they come to the rescue at the end of episode three or chapter three, as we should call it in season one. It's one of the best action scenes I've ever seen in Star Wars <laughs> in general. And it is a a Disney Plus streaming TV show. Yeah, really, so really good. Cool. Mm-hmm. All these Mandalorians fly in on their jetpacks and they're shooting up the place. It just is awesome. But you know what we haven't really talked about? Eric, we've gone 40 plus minutes and we haven't talked about the child. 
<laughs> As we've learned now, Grogu. Can you can you take me back to episode one when you watched that and saw his little face and his little finger reach up at that end moment of of chapter one? Well, what did that invoke in you? Like, what what happened to you? Here's what it here's what happened to me. Honestly, was I'd already seen these Baby Yoda memes and all this uh-huh. stuff. I thought that there was another TV show that I just wasn't aware of. And that focused around a baby Yoda, which was like a real, like very much like made for a five-year-old audience about a baby Yoda that I just hadn't heard about. Um, Cause sometimes I don't like reading too much about, I'll see a star Wars article. And if I think, Ooh, I want to be surprised by that. I won't dive right in and read everything there is to read about everything. So I thought, well, maybe this is one of those things that got by me. So so I already knew of Baby Yoda's existence by the time, or the child, or Grogu, or, you know, the artist formerly known as Baby Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> I was still surprised that when they fought their way all the way in there, and they opened the thing, and the child comes out, I was like, oh! So it was still a surprise, but it was it was a different surprise for me because I thought that, that the baby Yoda thing was from a different TV show. So I'm like, okay, I get it now. Hmm, So that was my thought. It wasn't a surprise of like, Holy crap, a baby Yoda. What's this? It was, Oh, that's where this character goes. Got it. So for me, my wife and I watched the episode on, so it came out on a Tuesday, which is the same day Disney Plus launched. So Disney Plus launched on November 12th of 2019, and chapter one of The Mandalorian dropped that day. Chapter two came on Friday, the 15th of November, and then every episode came Fridays after that. We waited to watch chapter one and chapter two together on Friday, the 15th. So... I had seen, I had tried to stay away from social media and away from really everything that would ruin anything that came up in The Mandalorian. And I think it was Friday morning or something, a friend of mine sent me a text about Baby Yoda. And I didn't really know what they were talking about, but I knew it had to do with The Mandalorian. So I was a little bit ruined that there was a character that was like a little baby Yoda. And uh, it really, really pissed me off. <laughs> Why do people do that? Let's well, they thought I would have watched it because I'm such a big yeah. Star Wars fan. They thought I would have watched it. But, but Phil, still, you got to check, right? You've got to check. You, you never just send a spoiler like that. I know. You, I know. You, you audience. Well, I'll tell you who it is off the air and you can give him a hard time. <laughs> You know this you person from Florida. First. You ask first. You say, hey, did you watch this show yet? Yep. Yep. You ask. Always ask. Never Always assume. Ask. Even the biggest fans. Like, I actually, now that you're talking about it, I remember it was the Friday. It was either Black Friday or it was Saturday, um, right after Thanksgiving, because uh, we, we were on a trip to Florida when all of this came out. And so I ended up at a friend's house, my buddy August, and he loves Star Wars. 
But even when he and I trade back and forth, it's like, did you see blank yet? Have you seen this? Because we never just assume that for as much as we both love it, that we've both already seen it. Because people do save. Like you said, we saved up episodes one and two. And some people are like, well, I'm waiting for this day because so-and-so's in town before I go see it. So so there's a lot of times you don't just jump on it because you want to. Sometimes I jump on it immediately, uh, like I did for the finale of season two, because I didn't want anybody ruining anything. So so sometimes I will jump right away, but, uh, you know, sometimes there's a saving. So always ask people. Right, right. It's uh, always ask. Always, especially when it comes to Star Wars. But I I was ruined with the fact that I knew there was a Baby Yoda. I had no idea what he looked like. I had no idea what what he would be in the storyline of The Mandalorian. But when I saw his little perfect green head and those perfect pointy ears and that cute little hand, I was immediately bought in. And I was just like Din later on in this show. I myself would die to protect Baby Yoda. (laughs) <laughs> or the child or Grogu, whatever we want to call him. But back then we all called him baby Yoda. Um, so when I saw his little face and then we, you know, my wife and I went right into chapter two, which was called the child um, where he uses his force abilities for the first time to stop the Mudhorn from killing Din. Like I just, I didn't know that was going to happen because obviously I watched that around the same time everybody else did. But I, my heart was beating so fast and so hard, and I don't have that type of a response to a television show very often, but watching the child use the force was like everything that 10-year-old Phil wanted to see in Star Wars, and I, once again, like I said, I was in love with this character, and I would do anything to protect the child. Wow. Yep. Yeah. It that's, was it that sequence response. that sequence in chapter two when Din is fighting the Mudhorn, we know he's not gonna die, right? There's a there's eight episodes of the Mandalorian season one at this point coming, and there were already rumors that they were working on se- season two before season one was even released. So we knew he wasn't gonna die. We knew this wasn't gonna be something where he's incapacitated, but in no way, shape, or form did I think the child would use the force so quickly. And the fact that he did, and he stopped the mud horn and he raised it in the air, and then he collapsed because he was using the force and it was taking too much of a strain on him. Like like I said, I wanted nothing more than to pick him up out of that cradle or that carrier and just rock him back and forth and make sure he was okay. Wow. I didn't feel all that. Well, you're not a real Star Wars fan. Oh, <laughs> I'm kidding. I kid. I kid. But, um, but we go through and and we see the evolution of Din Djarin falling in love, quote unquote, with the how he feels he must protect this child over the course of this show, and well, because he sees himself in the child. Obviously, right. they they, they obviously. Th- that's very blatant yeah that they put right. that out there he's he was an orphan this child's an orphan and you know he sees himself like you know i mean and mm-hmm. and almost the identical situation right yeah. ig11 was going to kill it the same way 
that battle droid or whatever it was was going to kill him. Yep. It, it's, it's and I mean, right there, we set up like, in the very beginning yeah. of the show, we set up why he hates droids so much, right? Droids killed right. his family. They killed everybody he knew and loved when he was a kid. Yep. And the Mandalorian saved his life. Yeah, you you literally have identical origin stories that yeah. a Mandalorian, because now he is the Mandalorian, <laughs> stopped yeah. a robot from killing an orphan. Those are yeah. identical. So he he completely sees himself in in the child. Yep. Yeah. And when in that sequence in Chapter Three's The Sin, where he is getting on the Razor Crest, which is a cool ship, by the way, he gets on the Razor Crest to leave after turning in the bounty of the child to the client, Warner Herzog's character, the client, he, he powers up the ship and you can feel the hesitation in his character, like by the way he's moving, by the way he's acting without having to see his face, without having to see his eyes looking down and feeling sad or sorry. You can just tell by the way he's acting that this isn't the end of the story. And then he turns off the ship and goes for this awesome sequence, tearing apart the what's left of the the um, the Empire on this planet to to save Grogu. And then, like I said, we get this awesome sequence of all the Mandalorians coming to help him and Grogu get away. So what a good what a good episode, and what a good way for us to really understand the character of Din Djarin. And then the bond that he and Grogu are going to have for the rest of the series. In in rewatching season one, there was always one episode that I didn't love in season one. There was just one. Like out of all the episodes, there was one that I just didn't like as much as the others. And that was chapter four, Sanctuary, where they go to the planet and we meet Cara Dune for the first time. And they then have to help this this farming community from these raiders. And watching the episode again last night, I realized there was a lot more nuance in the acting. So it wasn't so much about the story of what's happening. It's that whole episode was to grow the Mandalorian's character from being a bounty hunter into being a protector. And that's what I don't think I recognized the first time watching chapter four in the first season. But rewatching it yesterday, I actually wound up liking the episode a whole lot more because I saw that shift in his character that I think I just kind of either missed or thought was more gradual. But him going from bounty hunter with a certain code of you can come in hot or cold or whatever he says to becoming this this protector character of not only Grogu, but of all you know, lesser or, or hurt people really resonates. And it was cool to see an ATST also. Yeah, I like the ATST with the red eyes. That was pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll agree. That episode didn't strike me the first time. The second time through, um, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't necessarily see what you just saw, but now I completely understand it. Um, and I get that, that that was the, the larger point of that episode. Um, I mean, I already kind of gathered that he understood that he can't just push this thing off somewhere, that he's got to follow this mission through to the end and figure out what that is exactly. And then mm-hmm. the armor tells him, you got to give it 
back to its kind. The next episode that comes after Sanctuary is Chapter 5's The Gunslinger, which is again another kind of a, a slower episode, but again, it builds on the character and the universe. And we're introduced to Ming-Na Wen's character of Fennec Chand, who, as we now know, is a much larger piece of the future of this this Mandalorian universe, the Mandoverse bubble, I guess we can call it. And um, we meeting Fennec Chand, Ming-Na Wen gives us an, a, a really small performance like it is very tight and it's very muted but you know that she is a badass and i just have to say ming na wen is now the first actor in history that has crossed over the three major disney banners she was mulan in the animated feature of mulan she was in agents of shield in the marvel universe and now she is fennec shand in the Star Wars universe. So props to Ming-Na Wen for being an awesome badass and um, creating these ties amongst the Disney universes. Wow. But we, what we think that she's gone, right? She gets at the end of the episode, she gets shot by this kid who's trying to get into the guild, who is the gunslinger. And he shoots her in the stomach. And then the kid, this, this gunslinger kid gets just killed by Din for trying to hurt Grogu and take him in. And we see at the very end of the episode, these boots with the Mandalorian jangle, like the Clint Eastwood style jangle come up to Fennec, what we think is her dead body. And that doesn't pay off for the whole rest of season one. So it's one of those things that can easily get forgotten, but it was a pretty big precursor to what was to come in season two and what's going to come in the rest of this Mandoverse. But anything to say about Ming-Na or, or the episode? Uh, she was cool. Um, I, I liked uh, I liked the episode. Um, again, this one, I mean, obviously and appropriately titled The Gunslinger, felt the most Western to this point um, to me. Um, like even Amy Sedaris, which in some reviews and, and things that I've read, is she sort of a... Um, if anything in the Mandalorian is a room splitter, it's it's Amy Sedaris's <laughs> character, where some people love it and some people did not love it. And there's really not much that I've read on the in-between of that. Um, I'd probably be in the love it camp um, because, again, in the backdrop of a Western, there's always that one wily eccentric character that you know is useful for some purpose whether it be you know the prospector guide or the bartender with information or or whatever you know the 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 drunken deputy you know who's just enough of an assist to get you where you need to go there's always a character like that and and being on Tatooine, a planet with two suns, and you got to imagine it's just you're you're hot all the time. I mean, you live in California now. We both lived in Florida. We know what hot is like. And, imagine two suns. Oh my gosh! And two desert suns and a desert. So your brain is probably going to bake a little bit. <laughs> and uh, and I liked her eccentricness. It was it was fun, and it it sort of almost provided a quote mother for Grogu, you know, for a little bit. Another person who immediately, 
and and almost every character senses that that instinctive protectiveness around Grogu because that's how he pretty much rallies the team in the second season is you know they they took the child they took the child and everybody is like what like you know that cute little bastard I'm gonna help you yeah and some people barely had any connection with the child and and it's like no way no we're not standing for that and so anyway I I like that she kind of became Grogu's like mom there for a minute and uh and that was that was interesting to me, and and uh, but but yeah, that was a, that was a good episode in that respect. And yes, the rumor mill started like that was Boba Fett. Those were Boba Fett's boots. Those were Boba Fett's boots. But then, and I think wisely, you didn't he didn't hear any more about him. The rest right. of that season, there was nothing. There was no more back to Tatooine. Nothing. And I was like, okay, well, we'll find out who that is eventually, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Completely, it was, good, it was a good tease. Yep, I completely agree. It was done the right way. Um, they teased us. They made us all ask questions. And then we, it's not that we forgot about it, but there was so much more that happened in the last three episodes of this series or of the of the season that we didn't really come back to it. So the next episode was chapter six, The Prisoner with Bill Burr. And I, I know that you you have a lot to say about that. So I'll let you jump on in. Oh, yeah, man. Bill Burr is my absolute favorite comedian he is so funny his his takes on everything i just i feel like sometimes he's he's one of those people who are are saying you know what i'm thinking and feeling like it's like how did he know i was thinking that you know his his takes on on world politics and and just in just comedy in general he's such a funny guy so to throw him into a role um as sort of a a badass ex-imperial sniper i'm like man this is this is totally what a guy from boston would have been like in the star wars universe he would have been a a, a no-nonsense sniper type hey we're gonna we're gonna go (laughs) i'm not gonna do a bad bill burr or boston impression right now don't do that (laughs) no i'm not (laughs) uh but but i like that i could hear i could hear bill burr's cynicism come through in in his character and uh and then and i we when he doubles down on it and humanizes himself in the second episode he's in in the second season that to me was the pinnacle of the series where you really get to feel what it's like to be somebody in this star wars universe a galaxy that's been torn apart by all of this uh, turmoil, empire, rebellion, and the way he kind of sums it up, it's almost a worldview that you kind of, you know, it's better if you adopt it in our real world where everybody is growing, depending on where you grew up and how you grew up is what shaped you. And that's what he basically gets down to is, you know, the people on the planet in that second episode didn't, didn't care, rebellion, empire, whatever they're just people in their way trying to live their lives and and he just gives such a deep performance and again in a character that we've only known for maybe 17 minutes from season one ultimately that's about as much screen time as i'd say he had and then you bring him back it it was just incredible writing and and i think really really shaped the star wars universe 
and this, especially this Mandalorian version of it that we're watching better than, than anything I've seen in, in print or in the movies. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'll say that I don't really know much of Bill Burr's comedy. Uh, I will say I saw him on Saturday Night Live this past season and was not impressed, but that's a conversation for another time, not really on this podcast. That that whole second episode that he's in in season two is one of the best acted and best directed episodes of the entire series. I agree. What Bill Burr pulls out of himself and and shows the pain and hurt that he had being an Imperial soldier or, or sharpshooter as he needs to make sure in the first in the episode, the prisoner in season one that we know for sure he wasn't a stormtrooper. <laughs> um, but the pain that it caused him to be an Imperial is just on full display. And, and then Din, like I already mentioned, Din taking off his helmet and having to act without his helmet on just like two of the best performances of the entire series. Oh yeah. And then he just, you know, and, and he knew what a conflict it was for Din. He sort of teased him a little bit earlier in the episode. And then, and then at the end, he just looks at him and he goes, Hey man, you had to take your helmet off. I didn't see your face. You did what you had to do. And it's like, again, from a character that we'd only had 17 minutes of time from the first season about to come in and the again you're right the level of writing and all of it just was so so good that's my even beyond the the finale of season two that is my standalone absolute favorite mandalorian episode that there's a lot of close seconds for sure (laughs) but that's that's my number one yeah yeah, it's it's really really well done. And so in the first season that episode The Prisoner, we meet his character and he um is part of a crew that's going to break somebody out of a a republic jail. Yeah, I republic guess, or... jail transport. Mhm. And we we get to know, you know, none of these characters that we meet are supposed to be likable. And the one thing I will say is that Rick Famuyuma, who directed both the Prisoner episodes, episode six of the first season, and the episode you're just talking about, The Believer, which is chapter 15 in season two, he might be, aside from Filoni and Favreau, the best director that they tapped for The Mandalorian, because his two episodes, The Prisoner, is just a fun prison break episode and the believer in season two is one of the best directed and acted episodes it's like thanks to rick famiyuma for bringing his view of star wars to this galaxy because man those are two great episodes i agree and what's funny is filoni pitched to favreau as a joke that dave filoni himself deborah chow who's one of the other directors and Rick Famuyuma should be the X-Wing pilots at the end of the Prisoner episode. And Favreau said, yeah, do it. And so Filoni, Chow, and Famuyuma all get to dress up as Republic X-Wing fighters. <laughs> and just It's so cool. Mm-hmm. Moving on, though, we get two of the best episodes of television I think we've ever had, which are the last two leading out of season one, chapter seven is the reckoning and chapter eight redemption. I, I put those two episodes together. They're like a 
you know, a 90 to 100 minute long movie to me. Sure. Because they're so, you know, they're tied so tightly together. And right. that's where we meet our true big bad of Moff Gideon. Tell me about your impressions of Moff Gideon as far as villains that we know in the Star Wars universe. Where does uh, he rank? Where does he rank? <sighs> well, initially, I'm like, Gus Fring! <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> Which makes the second Breaking Bad actor to appear in the mandalorian which is yep. not a bad uh, pedigree there when you're talking about great shows to great shows mm-hmm. um i uh i don't know i was i was like uh i was skeptical i was kind of distant like all right tell me tell me what's going on with this guy here i didn't want to I didn't want to rush right into like, ooh, I'm impressed or, oh, he's terrible. But I uh, I kind of kept a skeptical distance only because even though the show was really good, you know, I've been burned by Snokes before. Yes. So <laughs> I, I didn't want to dive too deep here. And then, oh, uh, great. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, he showed up. He seemed to know a lot, which, you know, that's usually more terrifying in a show like this um, when when somebody comes out as an intelligent big bad rather than just a muscly, I've got an army with me, big bad, because now you're like, uh Oh, when he starts reading off their names and who they are and he knows it's like, Ooh, this guy did his homework. That's a dangerous person. Yes, it is. And that's, and Giancarlo Esposito, who's the actor, uh, who is Moff Gideon is he brings again, the people that they get for the show, the presence that he brings, he, once again, he's like, the Mandalorian without the armor. He shows how he feels on his face, but he is strong and stoic and he speaks evenly. And you know, like you said, the intelligence is there. And that's the most dangerous thing of all. Right. And for somebody to have, because this this takes place after Return of the Jedi, five years, so, um, and the Empire got squashed. So, and and a lot of those people died, you know, second Death Star and all those battle cruisers. I'm the Empire was throwing everything they had at the rebellion to to, to end it. And uh, so for him to still be out there means he had the intelligence. Um, he also commanded loyalty um, yeah. and probably some level of fear. Otherwise, when when the Empire was squashed after the second Death Star, they lost Vader, they lost the Emperor, they lost everything. And it, you'd, you'd have to be, um, you'd have to have some kind of special quality to rise up and, and command that level of loyalty from troops who basically have no reason to be loyal now because they're, they're scattered. Right. Right. Agreed. Agreed. It's like his crew just stayed with him the whole time. And I think we're going to find out there's going to be a couple ex Imperial people through the series. We see another one in season two, um, and then we have heard the name Thrawn already in the series. So Thrawn is going to most, I mean, I don't know how they would do an Ahsoka t- series without Thrawn. So I think we're going to find these Im- ex-Imperials that are still in command of the people that are loyal to them. Right. And Thrawn is another one who would command that from from his people. That, yep. hey, the war's over, but guess what? We're going to do things, and now I'm free to do things a little bit more my way without the Emperor and Vader breathing down my neck. Yep, yep. So the Reckoning and Redemption, 
chapter seven and eight were directed by Deborah Chow and Taika Waititi, respectively. And again, like I talked about, the two of the best episodes we've seen because they just are, there's no fat. There's a lot, there's the exposition in chapter seven is all paid off by the action in chapter eight. Um, and they, they fit so well together as one, if you just watch them back to back, one long episode or a short movie or whatever you want to say. But I, if I were to go forward to the very beginning of chapter eight, where Adam Pally and Jason Sudeikis are the two stormtroopers, once again, if anybody hurts Baby Yoda, I want to go for them. And I am very happy that when Adam Pally and Jason Sudeikis were roughing up Baby Yoda, they got what was coming to them by IG-11, the nurse droid now coming to <laughs> murder them. Speaking of, we kind of skipped a we skipped a character though. Um, the uh, the the Ugnat. Yes, yeah. Quill. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. It would have been nice to know a little bit more about him. I know I've said that he's very succinct in the storytelling, but to hop and and this is I guess where you know I sort of it's not a problem with the show. But they hop from character to character to character pretty quickly, and and I I kind of I guess and maybe it's just because I'm a Star Wars fan and maybe the average person isn't like that invested and they're just like oh he's the Ugnaught who helped the guy oh yeah he's the nurse droid who you know but I guess because of Star Wars I feel like wow where did this Ugnaught come from where did he work he said he was a slave before what did he do because the only Ugnaughts we've known to this point were Cloud City Ugnaughts who didn't seem to be slaves of any kind they i'm guessing lando paid them but it's it's like it's another character but then you do see like this this devotion in him because he sacrificed himself i mean he didn't sacrifice mm-hmm. himself but he he was like you he committed himself to the safety of the child which ultimately right. led to his own demise but but it's sort of like where like that was cool, but I wish I would have known a little more about him because as soon as we kind of get to see him, then he's dead already. Um, and I bring that up because now we're also discussing in these two episodes, we're seeing more of Carl Weathers character. And yeah. he's another one who, to a degree, is kind of one dimensional. He's the leader of the guild, the end. Mm-hmm. And while that worked for me at first as an introduction, to not really get that much more about him. And now it's like, Hey Mando, you know, come on, we can work together. And then it's like, what, who, who is he really? Yeah. Who are you? (laughs) And then this actually, and then I will yield the floor to the center of California leads me to another. I read this online in an article and I thought this was pretty funny. Um, and it does make me think, but as far as we're concerned in the Star Wars universe right now, there's really only three or four occupations, which is bartender, <laughs> bounty hunter, or moisture farmer. You know, otherwise, you know, there's really nothing else. Everybody's either a bartender, you know, a Horatio Sands managed to be an accountant, which yeah. is interesting, I guess. Oh, I suppose slave dancer is another occupation, if you want to call it that. That's the only other thing we've seen people do for work. (laughs) Warlord, I guess. Warlord, I suppose. But but there's very few occupations. So I guess 
that all brings me around to wanting to know more about Carl Weathers' character because it's like just to make him a one-dimensional leader of the Bounty Hunters Guild just seems sort of flat for an actor of Carl Weathers' caliber. And and I just... Well, it's funny. It's funny you say of his caliber because there were sequences when I was rewatching this chapter seven and chapter eight yesterday where he delivers certain lines. And all I could think about is him saying something like, you think Burger King would give me a free shake or what, you know, whatever he says in (laughs) episodes of Arrested (laughs) Development. Yeah, but we still quote that around the house here. It's like, well, we got leftovers. Hey, put that in the little, you got a stew going. (laughs) <laughs> but I think that though it's just because we're also big Arrested Development fans, so we and we clung to him because he was so funny because he played himself an exaggerated version of himself, which was hilarious. Which I a lot of people can't quite pull off the exaggerated version of themselves. You know, you've got to be a unique talent to do that. Right. Some people are just a little too serious, and and he was able to do that. So that left a huge impression. Just the same way, like I said, as soon as. Uh, uh, Gene Carlo shows up. I'm like Gus Fring. Like yes. he will never not be Gus Fring to me because that role just meant so much. Like in in the Breaking Bad world, sure. You know, and honestly, half the time I want to call Carl Weathers just Apollo Creed because yeah. that role is the defining role for me. He's just got. I don't know, man. It's 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 like I just said, his caliber. It's his charisma. It's just he was made for movies. Yeah. And you no, know? You're, you're you're completely right. Um I I just wish that at one point in season 1 or season 2 when they come back together for the first time in that episode where they see each other again Mandalorian and and Carl Weathers' character that they walked up to each other and did the Arnold and Carl Weathers like Yes. You know, that would have been amazing, but they didn't they didn't do that. I was just going to say like they're throwing in little Star Wars asides that if you know them, you know them. If you don't, you don't. And you move on. But mm-hmm. oh man, if they could have like thrown in like an Apollo Creed quote somehow, or or like you said, a nod to uh, the the Schwarzenegger arm. Predator, yeah, yeah. It's like oh, that'd be like even if he just walks into a room maybe season three and they're they're making food and he goes you got a stew going there like that would slay me that would slay me that'd be so funny i don't know what i don't know what uh i don't know what muff gideon could say that would be a throwback to (laughs) gus spring but i don't know (laughs) but uh, we're getting off we're getting off track i completely agree with you that it would be it would have been good to have learned more about these characters, but I will say in that chapter seven, they give Quill a little more backstory and talk about how he was owned by Imperials, how he was a slave. And that helps to further his character by showing that he wants to once again help somebody from being enslaved by the Imperials. And he's willing to give his life to protect another being from going through what he went through. And I just think that 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 alone gives the character more depth than some other TV shows that run for several seasons give their characters. For sure. And and I guess the only reason that I want more, and maybe that's a good thing, because they always say in entertainment, yeah. leave yeah. them wanting more. Um, because that's a fine line. But I think it's just because he only told about himself. 
right. know, he said he was a slave. He said this. And, you know, same thing with, with Cara Dune's character. She said she was a shock trooper. And we at least got to see her fight. So you can see, like, okay, she's she's got some cred there. She's a tough, tough person to deal with. But I just, uh, and I know you can't, you can't take a whole episode to devote to where this Ugnaught came from or what Cara Dune did back during the rebellion because then you're detracting. And then that does start adding the fat that I had talked about that is pretty much trimmed from the show. Um, so I guess it's a, it's, it's overall, it's a good thing that these characters are so cool and it's like, I want more, I want more, I want more. And the same thing with the actors they've chosen. Like we have these great memories of them from other roles, but that's, that's why they work. That's why they do such a good job. And that's why you choose them because they just, they draw you right in. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And so we, we get this, these great scenes, these great characters that are starting to get a little more fleshed out, make us want more. And we meet Moff Gideon. And of course, amazing battle with all of these stormtroopers. Um, well, I, even before that, there's the, they're camping in episode seven, chapter seven, and these weird winged creatures come out of nowhere and mm-hmm. hurt Grief Karga. And this is where we see the force ability that Ray used in the um, episode nine, where they can heal, or yeah, where she, where she can use the force to heal injury. Mm-hmm. And Grogu uses this force ability on Grief Karga to, to help save him. This episode of The Mandalorian came out on December 18th, and Rise of Skywalker came out on December 20th. So we saw this force power used by Grogu before we saw Rey use it. They put it in the show because we knew they knew we were going to see Rey do it. I know that force healing is a thing for yourself because they've mentioned it before in books, in legends, and then in, in canon for things like video games now. Force healing is something where you can kind of connect to the force to speed up your recovery, but it's never been something where you can use the force to heal other things that I knew of. Needless to say, the point of it was to first off introduce us to this force power, but secondly, make Grief Karga into a hero. Oh, so here. So sorry. Sorry, real quick. I just looked up an article. The only instance I can really, really find immediately is from a comic book story um, called Legacy takes place 130 years after Return of the Jedi, where a descendant of Luke Skywalker could use the dark side uh, to heal people physically. So it's it's been around whether it's legitimate canon anymore, because technically those comics aren't canon anymore. I mean, now it is canon because Grogu did it and Rey did it, but uh, Force Healing ultimately that particular one did not bother me. Okay. Okay. I I get it. I felt like it was shoehorned to make us not balk at Ray doing it, but it's I I I get that. I see it's worth. <laughs> yeah. And Grogu is very powerful for a 50-year-old baby. Well, hey, if we're going to start complaining about force powers behind the back lightsaber transfer, <laughs> Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I, hey, we haven't talked about Rise of Skywalker yet, and I don't know when I'll bring myself to be able to watch it again, to be able to talk it with you. So we'll get there eventually. I mean, that would that would make male obsolete in the Star Wars universe. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Hey, I, can I have half of your sandwich? Yeah, just close your eyes and think really, really hard. Think really hard about my sandwich. Mmm. <laughs> 
okay. <laughs> I I will say that you one of the things you brought up earlier when we were talking was how we got to see how an IG droid would fight. And that goes back to the very first episode or you know, chapter one, the Mandalorian of this series. Well, luckily for us, chapter eight, Redemption brings IG eleven back as a badass fighting robot who just goes to town on him. And it was one of the coolest scenes with him riding the speeder bike through the town of Navarro and just shooting up all the Imperials with Grogu on his chest right, and <laughs> in like a baby carrier. And doing the spins and everything to protect oh, him man. from the blasts. And yeah, that was pretty cool. It was so good. Like Taika Waititi, you can get the hint that he knew how to direct action after Thor Ragnarok, but this is a whole different kind of action. And Taika, not only is he proving his his chops for directing Star Wars, which it's now been announced he's going to get a film as well, but he is also the voice of IG-11. And if he doesn't bring just the right type of droid comedy to that character, I, I, Taika is, he can do some great things in my book. Agreed. But we get to another moment where there's, everything looks bleak. They look like they're they're not going to survive, and they're surrounded by Imperials, just 50 to 75 to 100 Stormtroopers. And something that I really want to call out that I think is just an awesome bit of trivia is that Jon Favreau couldn't get enough Stormtroopers. They couldn't get enough um, costumes made in time to shoot Chapter 8. And so him always thinking outside the box he reached out to what's known as the fan base 501st Legion. Mm. And people who have built their own Stormtrooper costumes were asked to come on set and take part in filming this episode. And when they asked, none of those people knew what they were doing other than that they were going to have a small part in something Star Wars. And they thought it might just be something for press or... Um, something small that's like a promo. Mm -hmm. They didn't know they were actually going to be featured in chapter eight of this brand new show that at that point still hadn't even been announced. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's so cool that people who have dedicated a part of their life to loving Star Wars and being advocates for Star Wars, the 501st Legion raises money for charity. Like they, they go visit people. They visit kids in hospitals. Like they do great things to continue moving the Star Wars fan base forward in a positive way. And John reached out to that group and invited them in to be part of this chapter of Star Wars in live action, which I think is just awesome. So shout out to the 501st Legion. Um, you, you bring up a random Star Wars fact that I just learned that you said there weren't enough Stormtrooper costumes mm -hmm. for the and also uh, from Star Wars, the original Star Wars, in that medal ceremony, they didn't have enough actors. So there's mannequins in that scene, <laughs> in the in the big medal ceremony. And only mm -hmm. the live actors on the ends who turn it to about face are the live actors in there. There's mannequins wearing costumes. I just found out wow. that in the Star Wars holiday special, the whole reason for the Wookiees wearing those red robes at the end of the Star Wars Holiday Special, where they go to the Wookiee place, uh, it's because they did not have enough Wookiee costumes 
So they were like, oh. we'll put them all in red robes. And then they just How faked funny. the rest. How funny. That's interesting. That's Yeah. Gosh. People that are actually still listening to the length of this podcast are going to get some really good trivia right now. Yeah. <laughs> so the 501st Legion is out there getting blown away by IG-11 and then Cara Dune and, and uh, Grief Karga. And we have Giancarlo Esposito's Moff Gideon character come out and actually start fighting as well. And he tries to blow up Din. And this is, of course, where we learn Din's name. We keep calling him Din, but this is where we learn that that's his name because Moff Gideon has ties to Mandalore. And we don't know exactly what ties he has other than what Din Djarin has said, that the Imperials have taken over Mandalore, and so he is the one that helped to lead that charge. At the end of the episode, we get through some amazing, amazing action where... Moff Gideon tries to blow up Din. He takes off his helmet for the first time. IG-11 saves his life. But we get through. IG-11 sacrifices himself. And Moff Gideon comes at them in this awesome TIE fighter. Din makes the TIE fighter crash. And Moff Gideon gets out of it with the Darksaber. Now, a lot of Star Wars fans out there don't know what the Darksaber is, which just is just another testament to what Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni, who's helping him create the series, are bringing together to push the universe forward. The Darksaber is a, a lightsaber, for those of you that don't know, that was created by the first Mandalorian Jedi. And the Mandalorian Jedi that created it didn't love being inducted into the Jedi Order, so they splintered off of the Jedi Order and went back to Mandalore. And basically, the Darksaber has been in the possession of the ruler of Mandalore since that time. So whoever is in possession of the Darksaber leads all of the Mandalorians. We now know that Moff Gideon somehow has the Darksaber. The last time we saw the Darksaber was in Star Wars Rebels. And we don't know how it went from, what's her name? Sabine, right? Sabine Wren. Mm-hmm. Sabine gave the lightsaber to Bo. Yes, so Sabine gave the lightsaber to Bo-Katan. Spoiler alert, we'll talk about her later on another episode of this podcast, Ruin My Childhood. But but what we don't know, we don't know where like it, you said, we don't how, know how it got. How she didn't have, come to have it anymore. Right. We don't know how Bo-Katan lost it, how Moff Gideon got it, but we know that Bo-Katan wants it back. But I was freaking out when I saw the Darksaber being used in the final seconds of Chapter 8. And it just looks badass in live action, too. It is super cool. And it might be something that, again, non-Star Wars fans would watch and be like, what, he's got a weird lightsaber? That's strange. And not put that Mandalore connection together. And and that's fine, because I think they do a pretty good job in Season 2 of... of uh, putting all those pieces together for us not going into that right now though so i guess this this kind of closes out season one but is there anything that that we didn't talk about i mean ig11 becomes a part of the crew and then we lose ig11 and he calls out when din says not to sacrifice himself he calls out that din is sad and I think that's a foreign concept to Din because he's lived under a mask for so long. And like you said before, he doesn't really show emotion. But again, we're seeing this character grow through the length of this series that 
he now is letting himself get in touch with his feelings and what he actually wants. And we're learning that he wants companionship. He wants a crew. He wants a team. And he's created a family with himself and Grogu that he's expanding to Cara Dune and Grief Karga and IG-11. And I just think that it's a great moment at the end of this this first season where we see IG-11 point blank say, no, you're, you're sad. And it's okay that you're sad, but I have to do this to protect the child and protect all of you. And again, it goes back to the sense of family that Din is now learning about that he didn't really know before because the Mandalorians weren't a family. They were a creed. They were a code. They were just a group of people that banded together and believed. They were, they're a cult, basically, <laughs> that we find out in season two. So that's not really a family. But I love that sequence when they're on the boat in the lava and IG-11 says that it's okay. I'm going to do this to save my friends. And I, I just think it's it's awesome. Yeah, it's very well done. Which, which as you say that, makes me realize too that as, as much as these other characters we don't really know, we, we also don't know what Din has been doing all these years before. Like, has he just been a bounty hunter and that's it? Yeah. Yeah, we know he ran with the guy who got him together for the prisoner episode. Right. And the two Twi'leks that were part of that crew, we knew that he used to run with them. and But we don't know how long ago that was. We don't know what he did before that or after that. Right. Um, yeah, you're right. We don't know him, but we, we've fallen in love with him. Pretty well crafted. So as we close out this look back at the first season of The Mandalorian, Eric, is there anything else that we haven't brought up that you want to touch on? No, I it's it's all out there. It's this is this is just how you do it. This is just how it's done. I mean, there there's yeah. no other way to to really say it. And and sometimes you catch lightning in a bottle with stuff, but I and and, and you don't know how that magic came about. But this is sort of what I've been saying all along is there's so much that's already exists in Star Wars that you don't need to go reinventing the wheel with it why why dismiss all of these things that disney owns now why why not dig in and find the cool parts and or what you think you could make into something different and use it and and continue on with what star wars has instead of having to make everything a new planet everything's a new ship everything's a new this use the world make it a real live world and and sometimes that story can just kind of tell itself. Yeah. So I'm going to guess that this didn't ruin your childhood. It did not. It it actually, like a lot of other things we've discussed, it ended up enhancing my childhood. Yeah. Same here. I I can't think of anything else with Star Wars that I've seen since I was a child that has made me feel everything I felt the first time you know, we saw Darth Vader, the terror we saw when we saw Darth Vader or when Obi-Wan gave his life so that Luke and Han and Leia could get away. Like those feelings that came up for me when I watched the original trilogy, when I was, you know, 10, eight, however old I was, I, I felt those same things here. And like, I talked about how I was ready to give my life for baby Yoda after the first couple seconds seeing him. I still feel that way. And and it's this weird, maybe it's because I'm a parent and I have this weird parental instinct and I just want to be like Din and 
have a little baby Yoda of my own, but I, I just understand what he's feeling when he looks at Grogu, especially throughout season two. And I connect with that character, even though when he looks at him, he's looking at him through a mask. I just, I, I can't say enough great things about what is happening to the Star Wars universe now that John Favreau and Dave Filoni really have creative say with what's happening. And, and like Mark Hamill did a couple weeks ago at the end of season two, hashtag thanks John and Dave, because this is ushering in the era of Star Wars that I had hoped we would get when the sequel trilogy first came out. So hashtag thanks. So folks, you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Fildimo, F-I-L-D-I-M-O, and also follow Podcast Ruined on Twitter. Uh, we post some pretty interesting things, and you get notified when new episodes drop on there. And uh, I do want to put a PSA that last night, since I was watching the episodes of The Mandalorian, I shot a quick like 20-second video of my TV setup, and I have these awesome lights from Philips, Philips Hue lights around my TV that sync with the television. So it is just super cool. Go take a look at, it's the sequence actually of IG-11 going through Navarro with Yoda, baby Yoda strapped on his chest. And it, it just looks so freaking cool. So check that out on at Podcast Ruined on Twitter. And please like, comment, subscribe to our podcast. Send us an email at podcastruined at gmail.com and give us some some ideas of what you'd like to see in the future. And we hope that this look back of the first season of The Mandalorian didn't ruin your childhood. Could it be I've misunderstood? This podcast ruined my childhood. Reserve some for the foundlings. As it should always be, the foundlings are the future. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. And again, I'll end it now. Phil's going to have to edit the heck out of this. Otherwise, it's the Eric Volitsky <laughs> Mandalorian podcast. But they also referenced other characters uh, from other properties. And now I, I yield the floor. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Representative Walensky from Michigan. <laughs> yeah, I yield I yield the remainder of my time to the senator from California. <laughs> At least it's not the senator of Ord Mandel. They can talk even longer. <laughs>